In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Readings this morning have to do with faith and law. For Israel, circumcision had been the law going back to Abraham. Paul insists that it shouldn't be required for Christians. In Romans, he argues from the fact that God's promises to Abraham took hold prior to Abraham's circumcision. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. If Abraham's a priori faith counts as righteousness to God, then the same applies, Paul says, not only to adherence to the law, but to all who share the faith of Abraham. That has never meant that Christian faith is lawless. From Paul, we also hear that when Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. He calls this the circumcision of the heart. For law, I like Richard Hooker's definition. The law is any kind of rule by which actions are framed. Our lives are shaped by such rules of one kind or another. Table manners, fork on the left, knife and spoon on the right. Traffic codes, stop for pedestrians in crosswalks. Citizenship, keep your dog on a leash. Pick up after your dog. Pay your taxes. The commandments, one through ten. Love your neighbor as yourself, etc. Hooker meant his definition to encompass everything from the laws of physics at the bottom up to God's rules for God's own behavior at the top. Someone asked if God is bound by rules. Hooker answered no and yes. No, there could be no outside code to which God is morally accountable. But yes, because God's goodness is the rule of his own behavior. God's being is the law of his working, is how Hooker put that. In Paul's terms, what the law requires is written in God's own heart. That highest law is what the Bible calls the kingdom, as in, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. In John, Jesus says to Nicodemus that we must be born from above to see it. God's goodness from above wells up inside us from below as faithfulness, hopefulness, and loving kindness. And we see. I want to talk now about faith and our laws concerning crime and punishment. In civilized society, we are constrained by laws that prohibit, for example, murder. In our state, the severest punishment for murder is execution, death. Last week, it was announced that six executions have been scheduled, including two on Easter Monday. 
I hope the governor will stop them. In debating the morality of capital punishment, a touchstone for me is a crime that occurred in Cheshire, Connecticut, 10 years ago. Late one night, two intruders entered the home of the Pettit family, a physician, his wife, and their two teenage daughters. The intruders stayed for hours. The father survived. His family did not. The killers were captured. How should they be punished? Until recently, Christian opinion has generally supported capital punishment for heinous crimes, and under some conditions, the case for it is very strong to say the least. On the American frontier, for example, scale, jails were scarce and unreliable. The execution of a violent criminal might be the only sure defense against him. In societies with secure prisons, the moral case for executions is more difficult, but it is still powerful. The heart of it is retribution. Retribution isn't vengeance. Vengeance is a thirst. Retribution is a moral principle. It means, I quote from my dictionary, requital according to merits or deserts, especially for evil. Retribution is a moral law in Hooker's meaning of the word law, a rule for telling us what ought to happen. Crimes should be punished, and punishments should fit the crimes. There are other moral theories of punishment. Some say the purpose of punishment is to deter others from doing crimes or to prevent an offender from repeating them. Those are worthy aims. They invite debate as to whether a specific punishment is an effective or necessary means to achieving them. For the theory of retribution, such debates are beside the point. It holds that the good or bad we do in life merits a response from the world or God. Cardinal Avery Dulles sums it up. In principle, guilt calls for punishment. The graver the offense, the more severe the punishment ought to be. Tooth for tooth, but eye for eye. Dulles tells us how Thomas Aquinas applied that principle in Aquinas' case for capital punishment. Aquinas held that sin calls for the deprivation of some good, such as, in some cases, the good of temporal or even eternal life. By consenting to the punishment of death, the wrongdoer is placed in a position to expiate his evil deeds and escape punishment in the next life. Dulles adds a cautionary note. According to Aquinas, retribution by the state has its limits because the state, unlike God, enjoys neither omniscience, all knowledge, or omnipotence, all power. According to Christian faith, God will render to every man according to his works at the final judgment. Retribution by the state, Aquinas thought, can only be a symbolic anticipation of God's perfect justice. So Aquinas regarded earthly retribution as humane to the offender. 
C.S. Lewis agreed. Lewis also agreed that the just punishment for someone's taking someone else's life was giving up his own. When opponents of capital punishment objected that by the sixth commandment God commands us not to kill, Lewis replied that what the commandment actually forbids is murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. There is a vast moral difference between killing a child and killing to protect one. God knows that, and we do too. That difference is recognized by every law except the thirst for vengeance. My dictionary defines murder as killing outside the law, especially with malice aforethought. Others objected to Lewis that we as Christians are required to love our enemies. In mere Christianity, Lewis replied, Does loving your enemy mean not punishing him? No. For loving myself does not mean that I ought not to submit myself to punishment, even to death. If one had committed a murder, the right Christian thing to do would be to give yourself up to the police and be hanged. It is therefore, in my opinion, perfectly right for a Christian judge to sentence a man to death, said Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis, but he exaggerates. Let's remember what Aquinas said. For human judges, what is perfectly right is impossible to know. So perfect justice will have to wait for God. For purposes of symbolic anticipation of that perfect justice, death by old age in prison seems to me, roughly speaking, as just a retribution as death by lethal injection now. It comes close enough to make the point. So I don't think we ought to execute the men that we now hold in prison. I assume that they are locked up tight so as to prevent their doing further harm. Should we kill them? That's the question. I say no. For crimes like those suffered by the Pettit family in Connecticut, human retribution is impossible. We have no punishment to match such crimes. There is no human answer for them. In faith, we wait that, with hope that wrongs are righted in the end. In faith, we also bow to mercy. We know that God has purposes beyond making punishments fit crimes. In the Bible, we see God being merciful to Cain, who had killed his brother, to David, who had conspired to have Uriah killed in battle, to Peter, who had melted under pressure, and to Paul, who had persecuted Christians even unto death. Jesus personally stopped the execution of a woman who had committed what the law held to be a capital offense. A contemporary of Richard Hooker, William Shakespeare, also saw this. When mercy seasons justice, said Portia to Shylock, 
earthly power doth then show likest gods. In the perfect justice that we wait for, wrongs are righted in ways that are merciful to all. And as mercy is dispensed, we will see justice in it too. Mercy and retribution, moral judgments that look like opposites to us, are mysteriously united in the law that is written in God's heart. If you ask me how that happens, I don't know. Faith lives with some unanswered questions. I simply know that my hope that our governor will stop these executions is embedded in a grander hope in which the Pettit family's pleas are heard and satisfied. As mercy seasons justice, justice seasons mercy. As the psalmist promises, when kingdom comes, righteousness and peace will kiss.